So after a little hiatus for, oh, I don't know, Christmas was it? Um, we're coming back to uh, Corinthians again, 1 Corinthians. If you would like a Bible to read along, there's a stack on the table here, a stack on the table there, and uh, go and get one if you'd like to have one to read along with. So we've been feasting occasionally on 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a book that kind of lends itself to that because Paul is writing to the church in Corinth uh, and dealing with a number of issues, some of which have come to his attention through reports from others, some of which are questions that have come from the church themselves, and they want Paul's uh, guidance as the one who planted the church and, and the one who um, was uh, the, the, the founder of that church to, to kind of speak into the struggles and the difficulties that they, are, they were having. Um, so, we're going to read chapter 8. We're up at chapter 8, uh, and so we read the whole chapter, which is just 13 verses. So, the heading, in the, certainly in the NIV, says, Concerning Food Sacrificed to Idols. Uh, and, and this is one of the areas, the situations, where life in Corinth was, at least on the surface, very different from life here. Um, but there's nothing new under the sun. And so, just because the things that we're going to read about just now may not strike an immediate chord with us in 21st century Glasgow, doesn't mean that the underlying principles and values uh, that, we're, that, that Paul's addressing here don't have relevance for us. So, let's hear God's Word. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, 
so that I will not cause them to fall. Amen. May God bless His Word to us today. Um, about a month before Christmas, in, in our home, we, we decided to do a, a thing called a Whole30 eating plan. Some of you have heard me speak about this. A Whole30 eating plan is simply a kind of detox diet. You cut out lots of food groups for 30 days, get, get them all out of your system, and, uh, and then you, the idea being that the, the health benefits you feel at the end of the 30 days, you gradually reintroduce one by one each of these groups to see if any of them might have been causing any allergies or sleeplessness or just conditions that you thought were just you and you discovered after this 30-day plan that uh, actually it was your food you were eating. So the groups that you cut out, well, alcohol, sugar, wheat, uh, sorry, not wheat, all grains, all pulses, um, all dairy. I got them all. Dairy, sugar, grains, pulses, alcohol. Yes, that's. So you say, what does that leave? <laughs> so it just leaves uh, protein. So it leaves meat and fish and seafood and eggs. It leaves all vegetables, with the exception of corn and peas. And it leaves some fruit. So actually, it's amazing what healthy, nutritious meals you can make for 30 days. Why am I mentioning that? Because the one downer on doing the 30 day, the whole 30 plan is going out. <laughs> it's impossible to find a restaurant that hasn't got sugar tucked away even in its main courses or hasn't got uh, wheat flour in its stock or hasn't got, uh, I don't know, um, one, of the, one of the forbidden groups uh, lurking somewhere. I went out for, for my birthday, so it must have been back in October. Um, and uh, we went as a family to, to have breakfast somewhere. We were going to have family breakfast. So we went and I combed through the entire menu and I could find only one thing, uh, a smoothie that looked like it was uh, full of the right sort of stuff and was not in any way um, toxic to my plan. And so I ordered this smoothie, and, and as the girl brought it to the table, I said, this doesn't have any sugar in it, right? It's just fruit. And she said, no, there's no sugar in it. She said, just agave syrup. And I'm like, what's agave syrup? And my daughter went, yeah, it's sugar, Dad. <laughs> so I couldn't eat that either. When you don't take or don't eat or can't eat or won't eat certain things, as you discovered earlier on, it can be a bit of a problem sometimes. It was a problem for us as kids when a plate of sprouts or cabbage or mince or liver or whatever it was that you said you hated arrived in front of us. Even worse if it happened to be an aubergine moussaka and five hours later you were still expected to eat it, you're not going to live that one down. Yeah, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but when you're a kid, that's just part of being a kid. But Paul is speaking here to a group of people for whom where you ate and what you ate wasn't just a question of allergies or dietary preferences or foods you did or didn't like. There was a whole spiritual dimension. All right, let's paint a picture. Corinth, a busy port city. We've established this uh, in the weeks and months that we've been dipping in and out of this book. A busy port city at a crossroads between east and west, west and north and south. A trading route 
a multicultural society like any of our big cities nowadays, full of people from every language and tongue, high, low, educated, not educated, rich, poor, slave, free, everybody jostling together in this city. As a port city, it had a, 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 a history before it had been destroyed and was then rebuilt. It was a, a, a shrine city to, uh, uh, the, the, um, to the goddess, sorry, to, to, to Apollo, but there was also a whole cult of shrine prostitution that went on in the city. And so it was a city where sexual license was known where immorality had been and was still rife. But it was also a city where lots of the trading and the commerce were associated with pagan deities. If you look on the stonework out there, the old trades house, you will see stone, uh, they're not effigies, but you'll see um, stone carvings representing trades. And trade guilds are often associated with different trades. Freemasonry as an organization has its origins in, in trade guilds. And therefore, uh, every trading place, whether it be uh, metal workers or stonemasons, whether it be cloth, whatever it be, every trade guild was associated uh, with, inevitably with a, a pagan deity. And so they would have their meals together. Every, every uh, form of trade would have its little club, if you like, its little fraternal. And people would gather and they would offer food sacrificed uh, to the god, the idol that was over their particular, uh, their particular trade. I suppose they saw them in the same way that, that in the Roman Catholic Church uh, They've gone big in the past on patron saints, the saint of travel, the saint of this or that or the next thing. Well, they would have idols, the gods associated with them. And therefore, in order to get on in life, in order to earn a living, in order to be able to uh, mix socially, then it was expected that you would turn up at some of these meals. And so, that's where the problem arose for the Christian. Now, there were two issues uh, around meat sacrificed to idols. One was that at these temple feasts, at these pagan temples associated with trade guilds, the meat that was on offer there was meat that had been offered in sacrifice and dedicated to this pagan god, this patron idol of their trade. The other problem was that people used to make sacrifices to these pagan idols, and they would bring uh, meat, and some of it would be burned in sacrifice, some of it would go into the shared meal for the feasts, and some of it would be given to the priests of these temples. Now, if you've got a lot of people in your guild and they're making uh, sacrifices, presumably thinking that if I make a generous sacrifice to the God of leatherworking, then the God of leatherworking will bless my leatherworking business. So the bigger and better the sacrifice or gift that I give to the God of leatherworking, the more money I will make. 
And so, the priests would end up with far more meat than they could personally consume as their allotted share. And so, what they couldn't then uh, eat themselves because they had too much, they would sell. So, now in the open market, in the butcher's shop or stall or equivalent, as well as in the social gatherings associated with your workplace, you've got two sources of food that has been openly and deliberately dedicated to a pagan god. So, that's the dilemma. That's the scene. Now, we can think about equivalences a little later on. But already, maybe you can think about ways in which the place where you work or where you study, what is the climate or the ethos? Because there's the equivalent. The equivalent was, where are the places in your ordinary life outside the Christian community when you're just going about your business, where the, the values and standards and the spiritual uh, expectations and values of, of, your, of that place come into conflict with what it means for you to follow Jesus Christ. Now, it may be something as simple and trivial and banal as, as the extent to which you join in the water cooler conversation, where the, the, the dynamics of the office politics are to bitch and complain and tear everybody down as soon as they step out of the room. You know, sometimes it's just at that level. But in other places and in other situations, it may well be that the, the God that is worshipped in, in your workplace or your environment is money. Very often in business or commerce or trade, the God is money. And so, uh, sharp practice, dodgy dealing, creative accounting, all of these come into conflict with our stand as Christians. Let's get back to the text. So, Paul starts off by saying, we know that we all possess knowledge. What, what's he talking about there? Why start off with that statement? Because he's writing… Here's, here's the two camps within the church, all right? There's the camp of Christians within the church who took the view that you know, these idols, their temples, their idol feasts, all these things, that's not… They're, they're just blocks of wood or stone or whatever. We know that it's all just nonsense. We now know that there's actually only one God, and that He's been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, all of these… Uh, trade guilds and, and all of these idols and, and temples and pagan offerings and so on, what a load of hokum. What a load of absolute rubbish, meaningless and empty, just a bunch of people praying to uh, saints or medallions or, or whatever, pinning their hopes and, and, and uh, concerns on, on what, what we now know to be just superstition. What a load of rubbish. And so these people were like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you eat in an idol temple because it's all nothing. It's just nonsense. So these were the ones who Paul 
describes as possessing knowledge. They felt they knew that this was all rubbish. And so you could eat with a clear conscience because actually this is just food. And supposing somebody had uh, said a little bit of mumbo-jumbo over it in the name of some fake god or idol, well, it didn't really make any difference. It's just a lump of meat, right? So their knowledge allowed them the freedom to eat and go and hang out with whoever they wanted without it making any difference to them. But then there were the other ones, the ones who were just escaping from that world and that culture, the ones who had just come out of a world of uh, trying to keep the gods of their trade or their community or whatever else it was that they were offering uh, sacrifices to, at shrines in the house and shrines in the road and shrines in their work. You know, I've met people, I'm sure you've met people who, who just end up bound in so much anxiety about trying to, trying to placate and keep, uh, keep the gods, the superstitions, the forces happy. People so bound in superstition that they can't, you know, go near a ladder and they're always touching wood and all this stuff. You know, we can look at that and think, how ridiculous. But that's a real bondage for that person. And so some people, having come to know the freedom in Jesus, having known that God has made the one and only sacrifice that will be required for you to be right with Him and acceptable with Him in His own Son, Jesus Christ, that God has paid all you'll ever need to pay in terms of sacrificial offerings and dedications to take away your fears and your anxieties. And so these people who've just escaped from a world that wanted uh, to kind of keep them tied in to endlessly offering sacrifices. We're now looking at older, wiser, more mature or experienced Christians who were going back into these temples and, and, and eating, and now they're confused. I just left that because I thought that that's what taking a stand for Jesus required me to do. And so the big question here is not so much about eating meat in temples. The big question here that Paul asks of the church there and those who, who feel so superior in their knowledge and relaxed because they've got beyond all of that pagan stuff is, how is how you're living impacting other people round about you? How are the choices that you and I make modeling an example of what it means to live for Jesus, to come out from among them, and to find creative ways, I suppose, of taking a stand for Jesus in ways that demonstrate difference? 
the danger, and it's all the way through this entire letter. It's why 1 Corinthians 13 is such a high point of this letter. The chapter you know that we read at weddings all the time, all about love. The danger that's all the way through this letter, and it comes out in every single issue that Paul addresses, is he challenges the community saying, you are not just a lone Christian doing your own thing. It's not just a me and God. It's not just a how am I doing? Am I all right? The question that Paul throws back at you and me and and the church in Corinth is, are you doing the loving thing? Are you mindful of your responsibility to build the body of Christ, to build the community of God's people as a place of loving concern and compassion for one another? Are you looking out for one another? Now, on the one hand, you see, these idols were nothing. They had no real meaning or power. Food sacrifice to them was just, as I said before, a superstition, like throwing salt over your shoulder or or touching wood. And Paul says that even if there are so-called gods, whether in earth, earth or in heaven, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, there are many gods and many lords in the style mile out here. I mean, there's a, there's a temple just one block down, right? The Apple Store is part of a, a global religious movement. Apple, I suppose, is, is one maybe very obvious or easy instance where we might look and say that there's, there's something which consumes the devotion of lots of people. Apple consumes the devotion. I suppose all things with a screen on them these days consume our devotion. Now, it's not an exact parallel with eating food sacrificed in an idol's temple. But there are modern equivalences. There are modern equivalences in terms of where and how do we show our distinctiveness as Christians. And there are areas where people would, would, would uh, struggle to feel comfortable. Technically, I suppose, halal food or, or kosher food is food that maybe not quite sacrificed or dedicated is certainly prepared in accordance with the rule and law of another religion. For some people, when the lottery first came out, having anything to do with the national lottery was a sign of endorsing gambling and therefore taking the proceeds of the national lottery in terms of applying for grants or anything was and and remains for for many churches and many Christians a no-go area. This is money that has been generated through something which binds people into gambling addiction. Or is it just money? It was William uh, Booth, 
the founder of the Salvation Army, who started adapting popular music hall tunes and putting Christian words to them, saying, why should the devil have all the good music? But for some, that was anathema, because you can't take uh, a pagan song and Christianize it. You see, we live in a world where there are these complexities and contradictions and challenges. How can I, as a Christian, uh, live in a way that keeps me free from associations that are harmful to other people? Alcohol is another classic great area for the Christian. In this church, we deliberately don't serve alcoholic communion wine because for some people there is not a problem consuming a modest amount of alcohol. But for the person who's just escaped from alcoholism, that could just be the one little step that pushes them back into a pattern of addiction again. Idolatry is one of these slippery things because many and most of the things can in and of themselves be or appear harmless because they have no uh, particular spiritual tie or grip or hold upon our lives. But for another person, that might be the thing they've just escaped and been set free from. That might just be the area that they have just got out of. So for the person who actually has just got free uh, from drink or drugs or whatever other obsessive behavior, then they need the support and the help of other Christians to stand with them in that decision and not to model a path of, of uh, temptation. Now, please don't mishear me. What Paul is saying to this church is not giving them, you will notice, an absolute or definitive rule about whether they should or should not eat in idol temples. He's not giving them the answer that they ask for. They want a simple binary, should we or shouldn't we? But Paul says the answer is much more complex than that. The answer is much more about what is the loving and compassionate thing to do for your brother or sister in Christ? What can and must you do in order to put the needs and concerns of your brother or sister in Christ first? And so that might mean, that might mean that if you're uh, out with, with a, a group of people and you know that there's somebody who has a, a temptation to drink or they've just got free, well, then you just don't when they're around. It may mean respecting an organization that cannot or will not accept lottery money. The way I've dealt with the lottery money question, when I was in my last charge, we got something like, I can't remember what it was in total, but probably over a million pounds from the lottery, but not for the church. I was involved in setting up a community youth project and a community center, 
which were for the community in its widest sense. And so, because it was the community that had put money into the lottery and not won, <laughs> it seemed reasonable to me to find another way for them to win. But I would never touch lottery money for the church, its ministry, or its mission, or anything to do with the witness of the gospel, because that is funded and resourced by the people of God. That's our calling and responsibility. Now, I'm not saying that that's a rule. I'm just saying that that's how I've dealt with and engaged with it in the past. But you have to ask yourself, what does it look like for you either in your university, in your workplace, in your community? What does it look like for you to live in a way that is distinctive and Christian without rubbing your other people's noses and things? What does it look like for you to stand clear of certain ways of living or speaking or thinking or acting or behaving because you're a Christian and it's not appropriate? And also, in order to show solidarity and concern and support for those who may be looking at you and asking, that's what a Christian looks like. That's what a Christian does or doesn't do. Living as Christians in a pagan world is a complicated business. And there are all sorts of questions that we wrestle with about what is the, the right thing to do. Is it right, for instance, to buy something if you then know that it's been stolen? Is it right What's the ethical response? And Christians take different points of view to trading with Amazon or Starbucks who have a creative approach to their tax and fiscal responsibilities in this country. Ethical purchasing. Is it right to buy goods? And when and where and how do or should we boycott companies whose trading practices are exploitative or unjust, particularly on people of other countries. Living ethically, living compassionately, living lovingly as Christians in all of these different areas, it is not a simple business. And I'm not here to give you flat rules for what you should and shouldn't do because, well, you will be here all day. And what Paul says to a church where there is no simple one-size-fits-all solution to this complicated stuff is, what is the loving and compassionate thing to do? What's the loving and compassionate thing to do as a witness to Jesus, as a measure of your own drawing a line and saying, I will not cross that line, but also as a measure of your concern for anyone who sees you, who knows how you live, because we're not called to live as individual Christians. We're called to be this community of people who are committed to one another. I would venture to suggest that where this church is located, 
is arguably one of the most individualistic parts of the city. It doesn't really have a recognized community that people would call home. Yes, there are people who live in this parish and in this community. But mostly people are out to work to earn a living. Are they here to study to get their degree and move on? Are they here to do some shopping and get what they need and trade and, and so on? City centers typically are individualistic places. We get what we need, we do what we have to, and then we go home to where we live, where maybe we do form community with family and neighbors and, and locality. Maybe it's an artificial distinction, but I think there's something in it. So how much more then for us as a Christian community in this part of the city, how much more is it important that we recognize that this is not just uh, a church where because it's city center I can dip in and dip out. But actually, if you're here, you're part of a family. If you're here and you're committed to any church, you're part of the life of the community. And you therefore have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters. And sure, we may not live as neighbors and we may be scattered all over the city, but we have a responsibility to look out for and look after one another. You know, sometimes it can be tempting to think, how much can I get away with? <laughs> but I, I wonder if the opposite is true in this calling that Paul sets before the church. It's not how much can you get away with in terms of your engagement in the world. It's how close can you walk to Jesus and to loving, compassionate fellowship with one another. Because in a world that is increasingly individualistic and selfish, in a world in which people are abandoned and lonely and fall off the edges left, right, and center, the great triumph of the gospel is a community of compassionate care and welcome, is a community that sets before people the gospel mandate to be right with God and to come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We are a community who have been brought together because God has called us to faith. He's called us to believe in His Son. He's called us to receive His forgiveness and His mercy for all the things that we were caught up in and bound up in and He set us free from. He's called us to repentance and to turn away from what we know to be wrong before Him. He's called us to be reconciled to Him and to one another through the cross. And then He sends us to be agents of that same love and compassion. So how do you live? Well, the individual details are down to you in how you set out your stall as a Christian in the place where you work or study or live. And the decisions for each one of us will be individual and specific. But Paul's concern is that those details be worked out being aware that all around there are weaker brothers and sisters. There are those who are young in the faith and who need your example and your encouragement, and so that how you live 
impacts not just yourself and your relationship with God, but with those who are looking and watching as they are to see what it looks like to be a Christian in 2018 in Glasgow. Let's pray together. Lord, as never before, we live in a global society. As never before, we live in a world that has connections. As never before, we have a, a sense of connectedness and responsibility, and we are aware that the choices that we make here and the decisions that we enter into here have impacts in other places. And sometimes, Father, it's overwhelming to know how to do the right thing. So, Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom, Lord, that we may know how and where and when to separate ourselves from the ways that perhaps held us captive before. And yet also how, Lord, to live as those who respect and are aware of the impact of our living on other people around about us. Lord, may we model a Christ-like way of living and speaking, of trading, of serving, of working, of doing what we're called to do most of the time. May we be consistent in showing to the world and to those who are watching, whether they're yet Christians or not, what it looks like to belong to you. And Father, even as we think about these things, we're aware of all the times and ways and places in which we've just got it wrong. And so we say sorry. We ask for your forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness where we've been uh, insensitive to other people. Ask for your forgiveness, Lord, where what we've done or not done has maybe not been the best or most faithful witness. Ask for forgiveness, Lord, where we've sought to go as close to the line as we can instead of coming as close to you as we might. So, Lord, renew us in our faith. May we be as wise as serpents and yet as innocent as doves. Would you give to us the wisdom that we need in every tricky situation where our stand and our belonging to Jesus clashes with the ways of the world and we cannot go their way or be part of their feast. But Lord, may we also live our lives not as those who don't, but as those who do. So Lord, would you teach us anew how to live our lives with joy, with love, with a fullness that overflows, that makes our faith and our belonging to Jesus a real and powerful and infectious thing that others might look and see and say, I want what they have. So fill us, Lord, we pray with the Holy Spirit. We pray for this city, for this parish. We pray, Lord, for the opportunity we have as a church to witness in this community. 
pray that as people come in here to the cafe through the week, that they may sense the otherness of your presence. That this might be a place where the trading that goes on is done out of a concern for justice and compassion. That the way in which people are hosted and received is done with kindness and love. And that the very sense of this place speaks a different language than the language of brute commerce. Lord, we pray for our witness as a church in this community that we may speak the gospel of truth boldly and clearly, that you would teach and show us, Lord, how to bear witness in a way that calls people to repentance and change to faith and to homecoming through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray ahead to workplaces, lecture rooms, tutorials, lab groups, places of encounter. We pray for people, Lord, that we know that we will meet. And we pray, Lord, that you give to us grace and wisdom in our witness to them. And we pray, Lord, that you would give opportunity to share Jesus with those who we encounter this coming week. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the churches in this city. And we pray, Lord, that you will strengthen the body of Christ in all its parts. So, Lord, bless the witness of your church, we pray, the witness of your people, that we might be one community of love and witness throughout this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.